Tonight's Bible lesson is number 18, speaking about Revelation's 1,000 years. And it's a very important study in the journey through the three angels' messages. So before we open up our Bibles, let's have a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for this evening. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to study your word. We pray that you would guide us tonight by your spirit, Lord, that you would teach us the beautiful things from your word. Help us to understand the lessons that draw us near to our Savior and help us to be ready for your soon return. We thank you for this and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Revelation's 1,000 years. Very important topic in Scripture. Uh, uh, the only chapter that we really find that details the 1,000 years is Revelation chapter 20. So we're going to be looking at that tonight. Revelation 20. We'll start with a few verses from Revelation 19. So Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. If we could have somebody read that passage for us. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The oh. armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Okay, thank you. So here we have this picture of Jesus coming in Revelation chapter 19. And there's a few more verses, obviously, that explain what happens. We see towards the end of that chapter, chapter 19, verses 19 through 21, it describes the, the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the Bible says that the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him. This is verse 20 of chapter 19. With which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that had worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. And we looked at that before, that when Jesus comes, he says that the wicked will die, and the fowls will be eating their flesh. There's multiple places in the Bible that, that points that out. In the teachings of Jesus throughout the Gospels, we see that occurring when Jesus comes again the second time. Revelation 19 is the chapter that really pictures the coming of Jesus in all power and glory. And of course, there's multiple other prophet, prophetic passages in Scripture that refer to the second coming of Jesus. So it is in that context that we launch into Revelation chapter 20, looking at the 1,000 years, and we'll see that there is in fact a very direct connection between the second coming of Jesus and the 1,000 years. So let's take a look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 20. Can somebody please read that for us? And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having a key of the bottomless pit 
and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, <clears throat> and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till a thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loose a little season. All right. <clears throat> Thank you very much. The Bible says that, that the devil will be bound for a thousand years. That tells us that Satan is bound at the beginning of the 1,000 years. And he cannot deceive the nations. Now we have to ask ourselves today, is the devil out there deceiving the nations? Yes, he is. Very much. Will the devil be deceiving the nations all the way up until they make war with Jesus and Jesus comes and conquers them? He does deceive them, right? The devil deceives them. And we have to point out these facts from Scripture because there are some people out there that are all over the map about the 1,000 years. They don't actually pay attention to these scriptural details. And some people think, well, maybe it's already started or maybe it's some kind of spiritual period. It's like, no, 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 wait a second here. The Bible is very clear about where exactly in history the 1,000 years falls. You just have to look at the details there in the chapter. Because obviously the devil is still running amok with the world. He's ruining the world. He's deceiving the world. The Bible says that he deceives the world and helps people to receive the mark of the beast. All of those things that the three angels warn against. And then all these nations of the world, they gather to make war against Jesus. Who's behind that? Who's deceiving those people? Well, it's the devil, of course. So once Jesus comes, that deception's pretty much broken. But those who have chosen to follow Satan are destroyed and their bodies are given to the birds to be eaten. Those who have followed the devil, those who want to make war with Jesus when he comes, they are fed to the birds. So they're not going to be alive. They're all going to die at the time when Jesus comes again. And this is the event that starts the 1,000 years, is the second coming of Jesus. When Jesus comes again, we see that the 1,000 years begin. And there are other passages that we're going to see here tonight as we study this chapter that also verify very clearly that point, that it is the second coming of Jesus that begins the 1,000 years. So, from verse 1 of chapter 20, it says, I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And you might ask yourself, well, is that a, a real chain, a literal chain, or is it a figurative chain? Because Revelation does use a lot of figures and symbols. And if you think about some of the history of demonic people possessed with, possessed with evil angels uh, getting chained up, remember the story of the demoniac that Jesus cast him out? Well, he always broke those chains. I'm sure God can make a chain literally strong enough to hold him, but... The most probable situation is that it is a chain of circumstances because he is, he is bound to where he cannot go around and tempt anyone. He can't do anything. He is bound to a very specific place. And notice that he's not killed. He's not, God doesn't take away the devil's life when he comes again. Like God leaves him alive to just sit there and pretty much think about what he's done. Because he can't do anything. He can't go and deceive people. He just has to sit there and think about what he's done for the last several thousand years, how he has destroyed the human race, how he has destroyed a whole bunch of angels. 
And, and he, it's basically like sitting on death row. Because when you see the end of the 1,000 years, you realize the devil gets what's coming to him. So he's got to sit there and think about his crime. Bound. Not able to deceive. Not able to do anything that he would normally want to do. Verse 2 says, And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. The devil is bound for this time period, right at the start of the 1,000 years, right when Jesus comes again and destroys the followers of Satan, the devil is bound. Verse 3 says, And cast him into the bottomless pit. The Greek word is abusas. Some modern versions say abyss. The abyss or the abusas from the Greek. Bottomless pit. And this statement, it actually harks back to what we find in the book of Genesis, right before the creation. The Bible says that God made the world and it was formless and void. It was without form and it was empty. That's how the world was before. And when we look at scripture, we see that those things, those expressions, they actually go together. This, this bottomless, bottomless pit doesn't have a lot of definition to it. Um, seems to be very broken down. Now, if you consider how the earth is when Jesus comes, is the earth pretty messed up and broken up when Jesus comes? Yes or no? We, it's covered with dead people from not un, For from, sure. No, that's, excuse me, that's out. No, you're right. You're right. When Jesus comes again, the wicked are going to die and the birds are going to be eating them. So the earth is going to be a mess. But there's other elements to how messy it really is. There's other elements. So we can actually look at some of those elements for example, let's take a look at Revelation 16, which describes the plagues, the seven last plagues, which we realize come just before Jesus returns. The plagues fall on those who receive the mark of the beast, which again, our three angels warn us not to receive. So Revelation 16, and I'm going to share verse 3. The Bible says this about the second vial that was poured out. Verse 3, And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the, in the sea. In other words, everything that lived in the ocean dies when the, when the plagues happen, just before Jesus comes. So what do you think the earth is going to be like at this point when Jesus returns? It's going to be pretty messed up, because again, the ocean turning to blood, all the creatures in the sea dying, that's pretty serious, and that's going to stink too if you have to be around it for any length of time. And then we have also that talks about the, the rivers and the waters becoming blood in verse 4, and of course the wicked have to drink that. The righteous do not. Thankfully, God takes care of his people. Didn't God make a way for his people in the desert? Did he give them water out of the rock, like fresh water? He gave them water. And even from bitter water did he give them water to drink. He did. He made it sweet. He made it to be good water. So God takes care of his people. We looked at that last time. And there's other things that happen to the world, great things that happen in the plagues. Um, for example, when you get down to the seventh plague, verse 17 of Revelation 16, it says this, And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. 
Some people always talk about California falling off into the ocean. If it's ever going to happen, I imagine it'll probably happen with an earthquake like that. I mean, who knows really, but the Bible is clear that islands are disappearing in the seas and mountains are crumbling. That's pretty serious when that earthquake happens. So you talk about the big one that's coming. The big one is, is really coming. It's going to be the biggest earthquake that has ever struck the world. That happens in plague number seven, the last plague. The Bible says in, in uh, verse 18 that it was so mighty and so great. And verse 19 says, And the, ci- the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Notice all the, the, the cities are crumbling. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and great hail... <coughs> fell out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. That's about 50 to 100 pounds, each of these uh, stones of hail. Interestingly, the book of Job talks about the wicked being judged by hailstones in the last days. That's one of the earliest books of the Bible, the book of Job. And it even talks about the wicked being judged by great hailstones. Isn't that amazing that even back then they were aware of this? And then here we have it in Revelation given to us very clearly. So those great hailstones fall upon the wicked, and they are the wicked are blaspheming God. So imagine what the world will look like with giant hailstones hitting everywhere. Giant earthquake breaks down all the cities of the world, crumbles mountains, makes islands disappear. That's pretty serious when Jesus comes again. This planet is going to be a mess. The oceans turn to blood. All the creatures in the ocean die. That's very serious. This planet is going to be a wreck when Jesus comes. An absolute wreck. Now, there are other verses that talk about these things. So, for example, Revelation chapter 6. Let's take a look. Revelation chapter 6, and we look at the seals, the seven seals. This chapter contains clearly six of them, and the seventh seal is in chapter 8, verse 1. But in Revelation 6 and verse 12, it says, I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, the moon became as blood, verse 13, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casts her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And it talks about the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men, the chief captains, all these people hiding themselves in the, in the dens or caves and in the rocks of the mountains. They're trying to hide from Jesus coming. The Bible says that the the great day of his wrath has come and who shall be able to stand, verse 17. So in this passage, we see stars falling from heaven. Some of these things have happened as signs historically, but I do believe we're going to see more of it again when Jesus comes. And the Bible mentions this great earthquake, like what we saw in the seventh plague. So there is some alignment between the closing of the seals and the last plagues. There is some alignment there. Uh, that, that we should keep in mind. And so basically what we see here is that, again, everything is going to be wrecked. <laughs> and the, even the heavens departing like a scroll. That's pretty serious, isn't it? So we have all these verses. And there's another verse that describes what will happen. Let's go to 2 Peter 3 and verse 10. And I'm taking a little time to describe what happens when Jesus comes because we want to understand what the world will be like at the point when Jesus comes. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. 
Somebody maybe could read that for us. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Okay, thank you. So the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Um, the Bible says here that the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And it says, the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth and everything in it will be burned up. Okay, so what is the planet going to be looking like at the point when Jesus comes? Uninhabitable. Yes, uninhabitable, right? It's going to be an absolute wreck, an absolute mess. We, ha we need to know that. We need to understand that because when we look at the 1,000 years, a lot of people that you talk to today have this idea, have this notion that somehow we're just going to spend a jolly old 1,000 years here on the planet, have a bunch of peace going on, and it's going to be great. That's not what the Bible pictures it like. Because the Bible says when Jesus comes, this planet is going to be an absolute mess. Everything broken down, cities, islands, mountains, the ocean messed up, the sky is messed up, <laughs> right? The stars are messed up. Um, it's going to be a mess. And then also the fire burning. Imagine that, scorched earth, fire burning here and there. So do you think there's a reason the Bible says when Jesus comes again, we go up to meet him in the air? I mean, get off, it. Get off this planet. It's a mess. That makes sense, actually, the more you think about it. Yeah, the Bible says that when Jesus comes, he sends out the angels to gather his people together. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, the Bible says that we go up to meet the Lord in the air. And it also tells us that the dead in Christ rise at that point in history. So I'm going to just read that verse so we have the whole scripture fresh in our minds. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Right, thank you very much. And we've already looked at before in our previous lesson how... When Jesus comes, it's one all-powerful, glorious event that everybody faces. The wicked are destroyed at that point, when the people of God are gathered, and the righteous are delivered, just like it was in the days of Noah, just like it was in the days of Lot. Jesus describes it that way, that some people will be taken away in judgment and destroyed, and the other ones will be left alive to, to be with the Lord, to go up to meet Him in the air when He comes. So. So we understand that there's a resurrection of the dead in Christ. The Bible says the dead in Christ shall rise first and we all go up to meet the Lord in the air. So there's the living believers and there's the dead believers. And the dead believers, they come to life. The living believers, they stay alive. They're translated without seeing death. And together we meet the Lord in the air and we go to be with Him. In fact, Jesus said in John 14 verses 2 and 3, Exactly what is the point of his return? What is the point of the second coming? Let's read that before we go into a further description of these events. Let's read the scripture from John 14 verses 2 and 3. Would somebody please read that for us? 
In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Now, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. All right, thank you. So Jesus said that in his father's house there are many mansions, or there is a lot of room, there are many rooms in his father's house. Jesus said that he's going to go and prepare a place for us. That's what he promised his people. He says, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. He didn't say, I'm going to come again and, uh, you know, move in with you on the, on the broken old earth. He said, I'm going to come and receive you to myself. I'm preparing a place for you. Where is that place? Heaven, right? Yes, heaven. So we're going up. You see, that's why the angels gather us and take us up from off the earth so we can go to be with the Lord in heaven. So when you look at the 1,000 years, you realize the coming of Jesus begins the 1,000 years. And the Bible says Jesus is coming to get us and to take us up so we can be with him where he is in heaven. He's taking us back to heaven for 1,000 years. Does that make sense? Because who would want to live on this planet for 1,000 years with it being such a mess? Furthermore, as we study the chapter of Revelation 20, then we see that God does not make the earth new again until the end of the 1,000 years. It's only at the end of the 1,000 years that it's finally made new. Let's go back to Revelation 20 and take a look at that point. Revelation chapter 20, and here we find right down towards the end of the 1,000 years, and we're going to be, we're going to be delineating everything that happens during, at the beginning, and then during, and at the end of the 1,000 years. But notice here verse 9 of Revelation 20. And they went up on the breadth of the earth, and compassed the camp of the saints about, and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven, and devoured them. We're going to read this all in great detail here very soon. But um, this is an event that happens right at the end of the 1,000 years. And it says that, that there will be wicked who will surround the camp and God will destroy them with the lake of fire. Now, if you go on down to verse 15 in this chapter, Revelation 20, it says, And whoso was, whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Okay, so there's a lake of fire. Now, take a look at chapter 21. Verse 1, it says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. And the Bible tells us that he wipes away all tears in verse 4. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away, verse 5. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. So when does God make all things new? He makes all things new at the end of the 1,000 years after the lake of fire because you notice that the people come up on the surface of the earth, the breadth of the earth, at the end of the 1,000 years. They come up on the surface of the earth and fire comes down from God, a lake of fire right there on the surface of the earth. So, do you think God's going to make it new before the lake of fire? 
No, he's not going to make it new before the lake of fire because that's where all the wicked are going to come and face the great white throne, which we're going to look at here as we study the 1,000 years. So very clearly, when you look at all of the context of the 1,000 years, it begins when Jesus comes. The earth is utterly wrecked and ruined when Jesus comes. It's without shape and form. It's void. It's all broken down. Sure, there will be some things, some remains, but it's not going to be like what you'd want to look at. <laughs> it's not going to be beautiful. It's not going to be pretty like it's supposed to be. It's going to be all messed up. And that is where the devil is bound. And guess what? He doesn't have anybody to tempt or deceive because when Jesus comes again, the followers of, of the devil, they die by the brightness of Jesus' coming. And so his human followers are dead. The devil is alive. I think his angels are probably there too with him, right? Because it just says that the human beings, the men, they die. And then the righteous, the dead who are resurrected, they go to meet Jesus in the air. The living righteous go to meet Jesus in the air. We go to be with him for 1,000 years in heaven. So guess what? There's nobody here to tempt for 1,000 years. That's why he can't deceive the nations because his own people are dead and God's people are in heaven. Good luck. He can't do it. And he has to sit on this broken old earth for 1,000 years and think about the mess that he's made of everything. It starts to make sense when you see the pieces come together, right? So yeah, the devil, he's, he's going to face the judge, but he's going to think about what he's done for a good while, for a thousand years. So what are some of the other clear details that happen during the 1,000 years? We basically have seen what starts the 1,000 years is the second coming of Jesus. We see that the devil is bound at the beginning of the 1,000 years. We also see that the righteous rise to life. And we're going to look at the scripture that explains that. Verse 4 and 5. Could somebody please read for us verse 4 and 5 of Revelation 20. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads, or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Okay, thank you very much. So you notice that there are two resurrection events that the Bible describes, two very powerful uh, major resurrection events. Okay, there's the resurrection of the righteous, which we know is the dead in Christ that happens when Jesus comes. And there's the resurrection of the wicked. The Bible says here that the rest of the dead did not live again until the 1,000 years were finished. And notice also verse, uh, verse 6, it says this, Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Obviously, these are the dead in Christ. Now, the Bible says in verse 4, it says, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The word here where it says, and they lived, is the word that means they rose. They came to life. They rose again. Some of the modern translations read that very, very plainly, where it says that they came to life. Does somebody's Bible version say that? 
from the modern version? They came to life. They came to life, yes. So when it says that they lived, obviously they were dead because some of them were beheaded, right? So some of them were beheaded, it says in verse 4. But they, they come to life, they lived, and then they reigned with Christ for the 1,000 years. So the Bible clearly shows us that the, the resurrection of the righteous is at the beginning of the 1,000 years. And again, we know that happens when Jesus comes, that the dead in Christ rise to life and go up to meet the Lord in the air. So we have the beginning of the 1,000 years with the coming of Jesus and with that great resurrection event. And these are all the righteous people who in fact obeyed the messages of the three angels. They obeyed and they followed the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ. They did not receive the mark of the beast. They were faithful to Jesus. These are the people who will reign with Christ for 1,000 years. People who believe and accept what the three angels' messages are teaching because they do not receive the mark of the beast. And that message is given, that warning is given in the three angels' messages. How important are these three angels' messages that we're studying? Very important, aren't they? So uh, they are faithful to God. We want to be those people who are faithful to God. It says that we will live and reign with Christ for a thousand years. If we have died, then we will resurrect. And if we have not died, then we are simply translated. We just go straight to heaven without seeing death. We get to be with the Lord. And when you look at this throughout history, we see these, the same kind of story happening uh, throughout history with certain individuals. So for example, Enoch. Um, Enoch was a person who was caught up to be with God. The Bible says that he was not, for God took him. Elijah the prophet is another one. The Bible says he went up in a fiery chariot and Elisha, his protege, was watching him go up there, right? Elisha was watching him go up. And then there were some kids that came out and mocked Elisha. And they said, go up, thou bald head. Have you heard that story? Yes. And the bears came out of the wilderness and, and devoured those children, those wicked children. Yes. Unfortunately, they had evil parents also who were probably mocking the prophet. So they had a disrespect for the prophet. And how sad. But they were all thinking about, go up, go up. Well... Judgment will come if you live in wickedness and mock God's prophets. That's not a good thing to do. So, so anyway, um, that was an example of, of someone being translated without seeing death. The Bible also says in Jude that there was a dispute over the body of Moses. Moses was resurrected. And then we have another situation in uh, basically the Mount of Transfiguration. Are you all familiar with that in the Gospels? Where Jesus went up on a mountain with Peter, James, and John. And the Bible says that he was transfigured before them. He was glowing bright. And guess who appeared with him? Moses and Elijah. You know, it's really interesting. Right before that story, in every case, it's mentioned a couple times in the Gospels. In each of those cases, just preceding that story, Jesus said, there are some people standing here who will see the kingdom of God come in power and glory. And then immediately following that statement is that story. That Jesus was saying, look, there will be people with God who, who never died. They just were translated to heaven. And then there were those who died, like Moses, and he was also there. So it's a miniature picture of the second coming of Jesus. And then we get to be together with the Lord in heaven for the 1,000 years. So it's pretty incredible when you think about how all the pieces of Scripture come together in these things. Now, let's take a look at verse 5 and 6 again, just for a moment. The Bible says the rest of the dead lived not again till the thousand years were finished. And it says this is the first resurrection, obviously the one at the beginning of the thousand years. Verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. Right? So that's clear that those who have 
those who rise in that one are holy. Those who rise up in the other one are wicked. Now, does Jesus talk about this event coming? Because obviously this is the resurrection. I'm sorry, wrong word. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ right here. But there's another place in the Gospels where he clearly mentions this, these events, these resurrections. So let's take a look. John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. John chapter 5, verse 28 and then 29. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in graves shall hear his voice. And shall come forth, and they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. All right, thank you very much. So Jesus said these words. He said, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming. Was that a future hour, future of the time when Jesus was speaking here? Yes. He says, The time is coming, the hour is coming, in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. And he says that they will come forth those that have done good unto the resurrection of life. There's a resurrection of life. And then he says, they that have done evil, in other words, the wicked who have died, unto the resurrection of damnation or condemnation or judgment could be another understanding of that. So there are the righteous who get resurrected at the beginning of the 1,000 years, which we just read about in Revelation 20. And there are the wicked who come up at the end of the 1,000 years. So Revelation describes exactly when those two resurrections take place. And Jesus was simply mentioning them here, that they are separated by, in fact, 1,000 years. Does that make sense? Because God's not going to raise up the wicked so that they can go have a party with the devil for a 1,000 years. No, they're dead. When Jesus comes, they die. They're going to stay dead. Uh, so any wicked who have already died in the, in the past, they're not going to wake up. You know, maybe there's a couple of them that will wake up when Jesus comes, like a special event, because the Bible says that those who pierce Jesus, they will see Him come. In other words, God's going to wake up some people just to see Him come. So, yes, that's in Revelation 1 and verse 7, that even those who pierced Him, every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, so there are some persons, who, wicked persons, who have already died, and God is going to say, you know what? You are going to wake up and watch me come, because I want you to see it. I want you to see what it looks like. But they don't have a promise to stay awake after Jesus comes, because <laughs> the wicked have to die when Jesus comes. They're not going to stay awake for the 1,000 years. They're going to die. And then they're going to come up again at the end of the 1,000 years, because they have to face the resurrection of condemnation or judgment. To face the Lord. And this is where we start to see some of the events of judgment that take place during and especially at the end of the 1,000 years. So notice now back in Revelation 20 and verse 4, Revelation 20 verse 4, there's a certain point that I want us to look at from that verse. And this is what the righteous are doing during the 1,000 years. You might ask the question, well, what are, they gonna, what are we going to be doing? Verse 4 says, I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. Okay? So judgment was given unto them. Is there an act of judgment that takes place during the 1,000 years? There is. And we're going to see that here in just a minute. But you're not deciding who's saved or lost, because that's already decided. Right? 
I mean, that's clear when you look at the scriptures, that there's already a sealing that takes place. God has given some the seal of God in Revelation, and God has given some the mark of the beast. In fact, most of the world receives the mark of the beast at the end of time. So that's already decided who's saved and who's lost. But there is a work to evaluate God's judgment, to, in other words, get our questions answered. That is what takes place during this time. Because imagine you go to heaven and then you find that some people you thought were going to be there are somehow not there. You're wondering, like, why? Why aren't they here? God forbid that your preacher or somebody you know doesn't show up that was like at church. You're like, why? That doesn't make sense. Well, God is going to show us the stuff that we don't see, stuff that we don't know. And if anybody's not there, we're going to know why they're not there, because God's going to reveal it. Does the Bible say that, that God will reveal it? Yes, it does. Let's go take a look. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Okay, thank you very much. So notice this verse. He says there, do not judge anything before the time. In other words, there is coming a time, which is in the future, when the believers will be able to judge matters a lot more clearly, a lot more clearly than what we can presently do. And you might wonder, when is that time? So the apostle answers that in the very next clause of his sentence. He says, wait until the Lord comes. In other words, wait until the second coming. Because after Jesus comes the second time, he will now reveal those things that we didn't really know about, that God knew and the angels knew who were watching everything, a lot of things going on in this world that angels are recording what's going on. And so God knows, of course, and the heavenly angels know things that we don't know about persons. We just see a little bit in people's lives and we don't even know the hearts of men. We don't know the motives. We don't know the thoughts behind actions. We don't understand the struggles that people are going through. There's a lot of questions that we would have about why people are saved or why people are lost. We're going we're gonna to wonder that. We might see people there that surprise us too. We're like, how did you get here? Like uh, maybe, maybe what's his name? Uh, Stephen, who was stoned. You might wonder about that guy, Paul, that everybody threw their jackets at Paul's feet or Saul's feet. And then he got converted and became one of the greatest missionaries in the New Testament. Stephen's like, weren't you stoning me? Or you're part of that group? But you're here. But he'll be happy about that, I'm sure. Yeah. He'll be like, wow, praise the Lord. You, you were converted. You gave your life to Jesus. So, but it's the other ones who aren't going to be there. We're going to probably wonder about even more. And so that's what this verse tells us. In verse 5, it says, who will, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness. See what we didn't know? The hidden things. It says the Lord will bring it to light and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, the things that God knows about the hearts. He's going to reveal that. So this will be known also when Jesus comes again. And then shall every man have praise of God. So the Bible says that that time for us to be able to judge and evaluate things clearly to get all of our questions answered is when Jesus comes again. So during the 1,000 years where the Bible says that, that judgment was given unto the, the saints, the believers during that time, 
we are able to judge, we are able to understand things that we didn't know before and get those questions answered. We'll know why people are, are saved, of course, but the people who were not there that we thought maybe would be, God's going to show us how He dealt very fairly with every single person who has ever lived. He's going to show us that. And there are other verses that clearly describe this. Okay, This is not the only one, but it's one of the very clear ones. Another verse is just a couple pages over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 and verse 3. And this is what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. Uh, who can read that for us? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge tribal cases? Trivial cases? Yeah. Right. Yes, yeah, so the smallest things. And then verse 3 says, Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? So, the believers will judge angels. How many of you guys know some angels today? How well do you know the angels? Do you know angels. any angels in your address book that you call up and hang out with them? Holy angels. Yeah, there's probably more that we know that we're seeing or hanging out with every day from day to day. We don't know all the details. But... We don't really know enough about the angels to be able to judge them in this life right here. But when Jesus comes again, he's going to reveal things, isn't he? And he says, don't you know that the saints will judge the world? Don't you know that we will also judge angels? So we get to review the cases of all the fallen angels. What have they, what have they been guilty of? It says we get to do that during the 1,000 years. We get to understand why are they going to be lost? It's because of this and this and this. And all, those, all the people of the world who are lost, well, why are they lost? Well, here's what you didn't know. Here's some stuff. You know, God's going to show us so many things and answer all those questions during the 1,000 years. Isn't that amazing? So God is actually doing this kind of, it's like a 1,000-year Sabbath with God, just spending time with the Lord in heaven and learning from God specifically, getting all of our questions answered about how God deals with people in a very fair way, that God in love has done everything possible to save every soul. And those who are lost are lost because they have chosen to follow the evil one and not follow God. That is incredible. Because when you think about this whole controversy between good and evil, it started with an accusation against God, that Lucifer wanted to take the throne of God. He accused God of being unjust and unfair. When he came to Adam and Eve in the garden, he said, look, God's not telling you the truth. You won't really die. You can, you can do whatever you want. So he was already trying to say that God was not just and God was not fair. This is all the accusations of Satan. And he's also the accuser of the brethren. He says, God, how can you save those people? Look what they've done. They've committed sin. They're wretched. They're miserable. How can you save those people and destroy me? The devil says, God's not fair. God says, you know what? I am fair, and I sent my son Jesus to die on the cross for their sins, and they received Jesus and followed Jesus, so they're saved by the blood. Amen. Praise God, right? <laughs> saved by the blood. God is fair. God is righteous. God is just and all the universe needs to know that because God wants us to serve him out of love and not just from terror or fear or misunderstanding. God wants us to understand. God wants us to know who he is. He wants us to know his love. 
that God is righteous and He's just in everything He does. And so the Bible, in fact, tells us that the redeemed will praise God for this very point. Let's go on over to Revelation chapter 15, Revelation 15 and verse 4, where it describes, it describes how the believers perceive or understand God right down at the end of time. I'm going to read this. Actually, I'll start from verse 3 and then 4. It says this, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. And this is describing the believers who are saved. In fact, um, when you look at verses 1 and 2, it describes them being on the sea of glass, mingled with fire. It says, verse 2, they've gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark. Again, these are the people who, who believe the three angels' messages and follow them. It says, and over the number of his name, they stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And they're singing the song of Moses. They're singing the song of redemption. When they say, great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty, do you think they believe that? Do you think they mean it? Absolutely. Yes. Like these are, this is for real. This is not lip service. This is the conviction of their heart that they believe God is great and mighty. And it continues. It says that just and true are your ways, thou King of saints. In other words, those who are redeemed, they, they believe with full conviction of heart that God is just, that God is fair. It's the devil who's crooked, not God. And this is really what it's all about. God is trying to bring the universe back into harmony with Him, knowing that He is love, knowing that He is just and fair and righteous, knowing that He cares about us deeply. That's what God wants us to know. He wants us to know the truth. Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John 8, 32 is a powerful verse. So we will know the truth, and the truth will set us free. God wants us to experience that freedom. And so it tells us here in verse 4, Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy, for all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. What does that mean, that God's judgments are made manifest? It means that God reveals His work of judgment, doesn't He? He reveals it to us. So, so cases are decided when Jesus comes, that's clear. You're either in the first resurrection or you're not. If you're not, you're coming up at the end of the 1,000 years and you're, you're a goner. You're in trouble, right? So that's already determined. But during the 1,000 years, we get to review the books. God re reveals to us these things, His judgments in, in all the particular cases. Going throughout history, He helps us to understand. So we can know the real history of the world, not just the few things that were remembered in the books but know the, the real full history, the full story of what happened throughout the ages and how God has worked to save people throughout the last 6,000 years or so of Earth's history. So pretty incredible when you think about how all the pieces come together with this, this millennium. Now let's go on back to Revelation chapter 20. And we're going to look, we've already seen now what happens at the beginning of the 1,000 years. We've already seen now what happens during the 1,000 years. The righteous are in heaven during the 1,000 years reviewing the books. The devil is bound on the earth with his evil angels for the 1,000 years. He has nobody here to tempt. All the planet is messed up and broken down. It's not really a, a nice place at all. So the devil's just got to sit here and think about it. Can't tempt anybody because no one's there to tempt. And then in verse 7, 
8 and 9, it describes what happens at the end of the 1,000 years. Notice this, verse 7. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And you might wonder at this point, where did those nations come from that the devil gets to go out and deceive? Well, it's already given to us in the chapter when you look at verse 5. It says that the rest of the dead lived not again until when? The thousand years were finished. So the rest of the dead, meaning the wicked ones, because the blessed and holy come up in the first resurrection at the beginning of the 1,000 years, it says the rest of the dead, the wicked dead that is, who are not blessed, who are not holy, they rise up at the end of the 1,000 years and Satan is suddenly released from his prison. He's like, oh, my people, they're here. They're here, all the people that he's tempted. I'm pretty sure Hitler's gonna be out there and a bunch of other famous persons who have followed, followed evil in this world. They're all gonna be out there. I mean, we're talking a lot of famous people throughout the world's history, people who were very powerful men on this earth, people who were pretty intelligent as well, but not surrendered to God. So they didn't have true wisdom in their hearts. And so all these people, the devil's like, wow, they're here. My people are here. And so he, like a military general, he's been thinking about this for a thousand years. In fact, he knows what the Bible says. Even right now, he knows what it says. So he's already got his game plan. He knows what he's going to do. As soon as those people come up, those wicked people, the Bible describes them as Gog and Magog. It refers to these nations, the pagan nations, and it alludes to some verses that are in the book of Ezekiel. Um, describing the pagan nations of the world with those names Gog and Magog. So it's describing the ungodly nations that have not surrendered their lives to God. And they are out there and they have raised up at the end of the 1,000 years. The devil is going out to muster the troops. He's going out to gather up these people. And he says, you know what? We're going to take God right off of his throne. We're going to rip God right out of that city. He somehow makes them believe that the war is not over and they can take God off his throne. Can you believe it? That after 1,000 years of thinking about his crime, thinking about all of his sin, he has not changed one single bit. If he could still get a hold of God and, and kill him or, or destroy his kingdom, the devil would do it just as quickly, even after 1,000 years. And all those people that have died when Jesus came, they were trying to make war against the Lord, they died, they were dead for 1,000 years, they come up, have their hearts changed? Now that they can see God right in front of them? No, their hearts haven't changed either. They are just as quickly right under the devil's banner. They're like, all right, let's do it. Let's get him. We can take him down. We can do this. It's going to be pretty awful when you think about it. Like the way this will, the way this will finally go down. Some people wonder like, why does God, it says he must be loosed out of his prison. Um, that's what it says there in verse 7. The devil's got to be loosed out of his prison. But notice verse 3 that we already read. The Bible says that after the 1,000 years, the devil must be loosed a what? A little season. So, is the devil going to be allowed to take these followers and do whatever he wants and muster a big war against God and fight for another 1,000 years? Is that going to happen? No way. No way. Not a chance. This is going to be short-lived. Very short-lived, right? Very short-lived. But it's very important that this event occurs because it is the biggest day of reckoning 
in all of human history. The biggest day of reckoning in all of human history. Everybody who has ever walked on this planet, whether good or evil, will be alive at that time in history. Everybody, from all the way from the days of Adam, all the way to the very end when Jesus comes, every human who has ever walked this planet will be alive at one time in history. So that's pretty incredible. <laughs> and the righteous will be with the Lord inside the holy city. The wicked will be outside with the devil trying to make an attack on God. So it's a major day of reckoning where everybody... So people wonder, like, why does the devil get loosed? Well, he gets loosed for a little season, verse 3 tells us. And verse 7 tells us, yes, he gets loosed out of his prison because his followers have just resurrected and now he goes out to deceive them, those followers, to try and attack God. So nobody's heart among the wicked has changed. Devil hasn't changed. Humans haven't changed. They're still just as evil as before. So verse, verse 8 says, And they shall go out to de uh, he, the devil, shall go out to deceive the nations, which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle. That's his whole purpose. Deceive them again and bring them to the battle. We're going to fight God. He will not give up on this war. He is going to fight God to the very, very end. Unless God snuffs out his life, unless God snuffs out the lives of those wicked evildoers, the war will never end. Evil will never end until God eradicates these evildoers from the universe. And that's what becomes crystal clear as we study the prophecies and as we will see these events unfold before us. As Jesus comes again and we get to go up to be with Him for 1,000 years, we study the books, it will become very clear, very clear that there is no other way to handle this matter of sin except to annihilate these wicked doers, to, to put them in the lake of fire. All right? It becomes very clear. So all the believers will fully understand, completely understand the judgment of God when it happens. Like there's no question that God is just and God is fair when God sends the lake of fire. So let's take a look at some of the details here. The Bible says that the number of them is as the sand of the sea. That's the last part of verse 8. Verse 9 says, And they went up on the breadth of the earth, that is the surface of the earth, and they compassed the camp of the saints about, and the beloved city. Now, you might ask the question, well, where did that city come from, the camp of the saints? Well, Revelation 21 tells us where it actually comes from. It tells us that it comes down from God out of heaven, verse 2, okay? So, um, Revelation 21 and verse 2 is not something happening later. It's, it's something that happens just at this time when the devil's able to come there, see the followers of the devil come up, he goes out to deceive them. The city of God at that very time is coming down. I'm sure when the Lord comes down, that's when he wakes up those evil followers of Satan, right? So, we know where the city comes from. The believers and the righteous angels, the righteous people, together with Jesus, together with God, are inside the holy city. That holy city comes down to rest upon the earth. And it is understood from other prophecies in Scripture that that city will sit upon the land of Jerusalem, that the Lord will split the Mount of Olives, because multiple times throughout history we've seen that Mount of Olives as the point where Jesus or God, you know, ascended or descended from the Mount of Olives. And that, so we split and the, the temple the, and the New Jerusalem, actually in the, new, in the city, we're going to learn about this, it's, the temple is the Lamb and God, right? There's not like an earthly temple. It's going to be different, a little bit different. But anyway, it is the holy city. 
New Jerusalem, and it comes down on the Mount of Olives. It comes down in the land where Zion is, where Israel is. And so God gives us that, that city, and that city is the capital of the earth made new. We have a future lesson coming up very shortly that's going to be on, on heaven, the new earth, especially the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. We're going to look at how the Bible describes that in great detail. So here we see that the wicked, verse 9, they compass the camp of the saints about, because the beloved city has come down from God out of heaven. And notice now, verse 9, it continues, And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So, fiery judgment comes from the Lord, doesn't it? Comes down from God. Is God sending a lake of fire upon the wicked? Absolutely. And this is why the wicked have to be resurrected to face the judge. And they have to face the lake of fire. They have to face their punishment. There's a day of reckoning that God says will happen. All people, all creatures will be alive at one point in time who have ever lived on this earth. And so the Bible continues describing this event. The fire comes down from God out of heaven and devours them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet, my Bible says are, um, essentially they have been thrown there. The beast and the false prophet are organizations that are destroyed when Jesus comes. But they're destroyed by fire when Jesus comes. And now the lake of fire gets poured out upon the devil and his followers is what the Bible is telling us here. It says, and they shall, okay, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. The devil, it says, will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, we're going to look at those verses coming up in a future lesson, okay? So we're going to understand much, much more clearly the lake of fire that Revelation describes, the nature of God's fiery judgment. We're going to look at that. Um, we'll have a whole lesson on it. It really deserves a whole lesson to really unpack it and discover it. So we will be looking at that in great detail. But just notice that this is when the lake of fire comes. And it comes here upon the breadth of the earth, upon the surface of the earth, around the beloved city, and it falls upon the wicked. Now, verse 11 through verse 15 kind of gives you the last picture of this event, of what it really looks like, what it really goes down like. So verse 11, I'm going to read that for us here. The Bible says, and I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was, no, there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works." Verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell, or Hades is the Greek word there, delivered up the dead. Hades is also translated as the grave. Some modern Bibles, they just simply say Hades, um, but Hades is also rendered as the grave. That's another understanding of it. So death and Hades are delivered up. Sorry, they delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So guess what? Is death going to be around anymore? No. Um, we're not going to be facing death because only the righteous will live. They'll be living forever, right? So death and Hades, the concept of the grave, that's thrown into the lake of fire too, isn't it? At that point. And it says that this is the second death, verse 14. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into 
the lake of fire. So what's really fascinating to me is the way the Bible has kind of you know, laid out this chapter for us. It's actually given to us in sections and it comes back and it layers those sections. This is very common in Hebrew thinking. It's very common in, in Bible prophecies and teachings, how the Bible layers information. So uh, from Revelation 20 verses 1 through 3, we see the Bible describing what happens to Satan at the beginning of the 1,000 years, during the 1,000 years, and at the end of the 1,000 years. That's in verses 1 through 3. And then verses 4 through 6 of this chapter, we see what happens to the righteous at the beginning of the 1,000 years, during the 1,000 years, and then down towards the end of the 1,000 years, of course, we get to be with God. It says we reign with Him for the 1,000 years. So it's described, and it says the rest of the dead did not live again until the end of the 1,000 years. So it tells us what happens to the, the dead, the dead, the righteous who come to life and reign with the Lord, and the wicked who stay dead and then come up at the end, right? So it describes those things, those parts of it. And then verses 7 through 10 also describes now mostly the end of the 1,000 years, how the devil is loosed and what he does. And verses 11 through 15 describes the events just preceding and going through the lake of fire. It just gives us a lot more detail, kind of focuses in on those points of the 1,000 years. So it's pretty fascinating when you look at the layers of this, of how the prophecy is written, how the prophecy works, and it explains everything. So verse 11 is a very important verse when you think about it. It says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. How would you like to be outside the city? looking at the face of God on that day. Because the Bible here describes that before that fire falls, right? I mean, verse, verse 9 talked about the fire falling, but now in verse 12, it's really describing the events just preceding the fall of that fire. Like, they're not just going to come up there and then God's like, okay, you're gone. No, there's a reason He woke them up. There's a reason that He brought the wicked to be alive at that point in history. Because it's a day of reckoning. It's a day of facing the judge. And so they will face the judge and notice that heaven and earth flee from his face. In other words, you don't want to look at God's face. Like, you don't want to look. Imagine that piercing look of God right into your soul. Like, I know everything about you, what you've done. And you're guilty. And you know, you know you're guilty, right? Imagine that face. That face that you never want to see, right? If you're, a, if you're a child and you messed up and you have to answer to your parents, and your parents are very upset for what you did, you're not very happy to see your parents' face. <laughs> You'll be in trouble when you see your parents' face. When they have to look at God's face, the look of God, heaven and earth, we don't want to look. You know, they flee. The wicked have to look into the face of God, and God says, that's right. You knew. All the times that I tried to reach you with the gospel and share the good news of hope with you, and you turned it all down. You rejected the message of hope. Every time somebody went and tried to share the love of Jesus with you, you turned them away. You did not accept the gospel. And, and those who even knew better and maybe supposedly accepted the gospel, maybe they were even preaching the gospel, but they decided to live in sin, God says, you know why you're there. Because you've chosen sin instead of following Christ. And so it's a very, very solemn moment in, in the history of the world when there's a day of reckoning, when the wicked have to stand before the great white throne of God, the judge of all the universe. It was a very solemn time, and you don't want to be out there, outside the city. No. You want to be inside the city with God, right? 
because we put our trust in Jesus and we followed him now. So the wicked will be out there facing the judge. And then the Bible says that they are also judged by the books. God shows and reveals, look, this is what you've done. Imagine their lives flashing before them as God reveals what they've done in their lives. And they know it's all true. And they never repented of their sin. They chose evil all the way down to the very end when they're about to make war against God. You know, the Bible says that every knee will bow. Every knee, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They're not going to serve Him, but they're going to have to bow. They're compelled to say, you know what? We're wicked. God is just. We're wicked. But does that mean that they're going to surrender their heart and say, oh, Lord Jesus, we're going to serve You? No. No, they have to bow the knee. They have to bow the knee and say, you know what, God, you're right. We're, we're evil creatures. And after, right after that, they just harden their heart again and they say, you know what? The devil's like, let's do this. But I, I think at the same time, they're going to be like, what hope is left? <laughs> when they really see the judge, it's going to be like, what hope is left? I can imagine some people turning on others, who, like friends, family members, like, like how could, you know, you're the reason I'm here. People are going to get upset. Like, you're the reason I'm here. We're lost. Look, God's inside the city. We're out here. They're going to turn on themselves. Throughout all scriptural history, we see a lot of times the enemies of God's people, they turned against each other. It's going to happen again. Like, what? This is the reason. Some people are going to come to their pastor and be like, you're the reason I'm here. Because you told me that I could do this. And I disobeyed God. And I followed you instead of God. Imagine that. People following preachers instead of God. Think about all those priests that condemned Jesus and are lost. Think about all the people who shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Some of those people repented, but a lot of people did not repent. They're going to be guilty. They're going to look at those priests and say, what? You, you're the reason I'm lost. I don't want to be in that situation. Do you? No. Let's follow Jesus and follow the word of God only because in the end, we have to answer before the great white throne of God. The wicked will stand there and they will be condemned. They will bow the knee, but they won't serve God. And they're going to be turning against each other and they're going to be lost. The Bible says that God says, all right, once that reckoning is done, the fire falls, the lake of fire. God says the judgment has come. This is what you know the judgment is. It's the lake of fire and I'm sending it now. Fire falls from out of heaven upon the wicked and burns them and devours them. All right. You know, the good news is that Jesus has invited us to believe him today. <laughs> Jesus has invited us to surrender our heart to Him today, that we are not to wait. We don't know what's happening tomorrow, right? We might not even get another day. We never know that. Today is always the day that we should serve God. Today is the day we should say, I'm going to follow God. I'm going to obey the voice of the Lord, right? Obey God now. Surrender to God now. Because Jesus is coming soon. And when He does, it's game over. You're either with the Lord or you're not. And at the end, those who are not with the Lord... They will be reckoning with God, looking into the face of the judge on the great white throne. And during the 1,000 years, we're going to find out all the reasons why the wicked are lost, why they're out there. Question. I heard it in a Bible study, and this made a lot of sense. Those inside the city, let's say your child is out there fixing to go after, wants to destroy God. You're going to, it will that much more help to understand about the character, the choices they made. You're going to see your loved one. It's going to be sad. Mm -hmm. They're they were going to want to kill you. But it will also help you us to understand. And and they will also realize fully, like what we're saying, you know, because they have to bow the knee. They have. Yeah. 
they'll realize. Yeah, but they yeah, they're gonna. But but yeah, but we will understand. The angels understand. We will understand because yeah. we've already looked at it. They will understand too. They will understand why they're being judged by the lake of fire. God's gonna make sure they know that. And like you said, it is gonna be a sad moment. But here's the final hope that God gives us. He says in in chapter 21 that I'm gonna make all things new new heaven and new earth. And it says also in verse 4, Revelation 21, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And verse 5, he that sat upon the throne, that's like the great white throne, right? He that sat upon the throne, also, to, also in heaven sitting on the throne, Okay, he that sat up on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Right, for these words are true and faithful. Isn't that amazing that how this whole great controversy ends is a final day of reckoning before the judge of the entire universe. And that God, after that judgment of the fire, after everyone you know, has to answer to God, then he wipes away all the tears. Because there will be tears as you look at the people out there that you tried to save and family members and who, who knows who, right? people outside and saved inside, there will be tears and there will be death. But after that, there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more dying. All those things, those former things are passed away. None of it forevermore. The universe will be at peace for all eternity, worshiping God, serving God, a beautiful new world, amazing new world. We're going to study about that new world, that new earth that the Bible describes, the new Jerusalem, how beautiful it's going to be. It's going to be incredible, just this perfect joy and peace and love reigning throughout the entire universe, perfect harmony. All who live for eternity will be obedient to the voice of God, surrendered to God, and will love God. They will live by the principle of love for God and love for man. That's what the, the future is going to be like, incredible. So the Bible just lays it out for us, and I'm looking forward to it. How about you? <laughs> looking forward to that, that time of total fixing of everything that has gone wrong in this world. God finally sets it all straight. The record is set straight. And we know that God is just and fair, that God is love. Praise God. <laughs> so let's have a word of prayer as we close up our lesson together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this time we could study tonight for these incredible truths of Scripture. Lord, we want to be ready for your coming. We want to be with you inside that holy city at the end of the 1,000 years and during the 1,000 years, Lord, we want to be caught up to meet you when you come and we want to be with you during the 1,000 years, reviewing the books, learning from you all these things about the history of the world and how you have judged righteously and fairly in everything. Lord, please fill our hearts and minds with your spirit, with your love and with your truth. And may we live with you now and for eternity. For this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.